Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 42, Being Wild About Bees. Today we have a returning guest, Brian Kaiser, coming back on with us. He was originally on with us back in episode number 9, where we talked a little bit with him about his day job. Brian, if you remember, is a wildlife investigator for the Ohio Division of Wildlife. He's been uh, with them for 22 years, uh, six years as a county wildlife officer, and seven as an investigator, uh, specifically in the Lake Erie Enforcement Unit. Today we're going to talk about a bunch of things, a couple things, uh, but the big topic we're going to talk about are honeybees. But before we get to that, we are going to have Brian share uh, a little bit of a story. Uh, he just wrapped up, I say just, uh, it was you know probably a couple months ago, but he did wrap up a case that involved a poached trophy whitetail buck in Ohio. Uh, I'll let him say the details, but boy, it it was crazy. Uh, the the amount of money for restitution, um, the point, uh, um, the amount of points on this buck, the score of this buck, pretty crazy. We're also going to talk a little bit about uh, Lake Erie walleye fishing and a little bit about perch fishing as well, uh, how that's looking this year for all you fishermen out there. And like I said, that big thing that we're going to talk about is honeybees. Brian basically grew up with honeybees. He's now taken over his own hive. So we're going to talk a little bit about how to find and capture. I guess not really find. We're going to talk about how to capture a uh, swarm of honeybees to turn into your own hive. And some ways to manage and, and process and uh, that kind of thing, your hive, uh, once you get rolling. So without any further ado, let's get right into... Some good discussion type things and see what Brian has to offer right now. I'm joined today by Brian Kaiser. Brian, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, don't know how many people are going to recognize your voice, but anyone uh, who caught one of our earlier episodes, uh, Brian was with us during uh, episode nine, where we did a meet a game warden, which was a little bit of a misnomer because you're, you're technically not a game warden. You're a wildlife investigator, but I'm going to go with those are just semantics if it's, you're OK with that. It's it's a detective level of the same job. Basically. OK, yeah. Uh, so. Wanted to have you back on today to talk a little bit about your job, sort of, you know, that was the last time we talked was back in April. Uh, so sort of see, you know, if there's any new things that sort of came up, any stories you'd like to share with us. And then I'd like to dive into a little bit of honeybees. Since I found out that you have your own honeybees, I'd like to talk a little bit sure. about that as well. Okay. So do you, let's just start. Do you have any stories for me? I always like... I like talking to someone in the outdoor law enforcement area in this setting, you know, not necessarily while I'm hunting or anything like that, but in this setting and 
I'm very curious as far as do you have any good stories? Um, I guess it depends on what you consider good. We, I, the things that we see day to day that are, I guess it becomes pretty routine to us is, is probably things that, uh, you know, the general public is, you know, thinks is the better stuff, I suppose that, uh, that they don't see as often as we do. Um, I did have a, a case that finally finished up from last year, um, with a, with a very large, uh, buck, um, that was actually a, a suburban deer, uh, scored, I think it was two, just a little over 246. And, uh, Ohio has a, we have a formula that we use on, on those bigger trophy size, uh, deer for, for restitution values. And it had a restitution value of, I think it was just shy of $38,000. Okay. Wait, so it was a 240 inch, two, 246, 246. Mm-hmm. inch wild buck yes that's crazy wild I, wild as in living in you know city limits but right but not but, yeah. a, not a farm raised no you know no. End up there, like that i can't even i can't even imagine it it was yeah it, it was a big deer just 23 points in all directions and Jeez. uh it's 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 so big it doesn't doesn't even look real wow yeah, by far the biggest biggest whitetail antlers I've ever had my hands on. Wow. Okay. Actually, and, actually heavy, just really heavy, just to lift it up. And and this buck was poached then, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was it was killed illegally. Wow. Was it was it out of season or at night or? Um. It well, it was inside some city limits. Uh. But that's you know outside of that, it it was it was shot at night, and um it was it was claimed to have been killed in a, a different county and it at the end after we got into things a little bit it turned out that it it was actually the second buck uh that that guy killed for the year and in ohio like pennsylvania you're only allowed one buck per year wow okay so the so obviously you know this guy got caught right and all that mm-hmm. stuff and had to go through that legal but you said the restitution was thirty eight thousand dollars it was it, it was just just short of thirty eight thousand dollars is what it calculated out to um, through a plea bargain in court, he agreed to plead guilty to all the charges, and uh, we lowered the restitution down to twenty-five thousand. Holy crap! <laughs> that that's unbelievable to me. Um, so uh, there's, yeah. I don't know if you can answer this question, um, but there is there's a lot of debate online and people in hunting circles. You know, do do the trophy requirements for you know for fines and restitution like are they a good thing or a bad thing you know like should we really consider a buck that size to be worth more than any other deer or you know isn't a deer a deer that type of thing i don't know if you can answer this question but like do you feel like it do you feel like it helps and if you can't answer i understand i mean it, it's definitely a deterrent okay um, you know um wasn't in this case, yeah. but typically is a deterrent. <laughs> usually, well, there's there's exceptions to everything, but um, yeah, it, it's usually a deterrent. Um, you know, I, obviously, a deer that size. You know, Ohio is one of those states that you know we have we're, we're known for for big bucks here. People travel here from other states, so there's uh, you know you have the 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 tourism and the revenue component to to all of that, and and, and they're specifically coming here to hunt those caliber of deer 
Um, so I guess there's there's some value to making those deer worth more than than you know your you know a, a year and a half old buck or something like that. I suppose. Um, you know, I I can I can understand some debate both directions there on how much is enough though. I'm, I I understand that too. Yeah, I, I'm all for fines and penalties as big as possible for, you know, extreme poaching cases, you know, a deer shot at night, um, taking more than your limit, you know, I mean, obviously in, you know, in any form of law enforcement, there needs to be some sort of common sense approach to it, you know, because mistakes do, honest mistakes do happen. Um, But for the people that are just by far negligently taking more deer than they're supposed to or obviously out of season or at night like i'm all for i don't care if it was a button buck or if it was a 246 inch buck you know let, let's throw the book at them and, and make it as right. bad as possible but i also get the the idea of you know what economically what a deer of that caliber is worth because like you said there are people that are traveling to Ohio specifically for the larger class bucks and and older bucks. So I I get that as well. Yeah. And we, when we developed that, when that whole system was, was put in place prior to that, we had the restitution on a buck was $500 regardless (laughs) of what size it was. Um, Whenever we instituted this new restitution system, um, it was, it was, I think a lot of it, the formula that's used to calculate that amount was tied to the, uh, some was tied to the commercial, uh, deer industry, the hunting preserves and, and what, what you would pay to go to a hunting preserve and shoot a deer that size, um, is, is what some of it was, was based on, I believe at one point. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I, I have to ask, uh, and I don't, I don't know how far this story traveled, um, but it was it was big news for us uh, this past uh, rifle season here in Pennsylvania. And actually, not far from my family's cabin, we had um, sort of we had an incident that that where some two well one teenager, one young adult ended up mm-hmm. they were kicking a buck and and all these things and yeah. they videoed it. Uh, and yeah. shared it with some people. Did, did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Okay. So, I mean, <clears throat> th- they're in trouble. There's, you know, they're going through the process now of exactly, you know, they filed charges and I'm sure they'll go through the whole court proceeding or plea deals or whatever it is. Um, do you have any thoughts you want to share on just sort of that process or that incident or anything like that? I know you're, you know, looking at it from afar, not involved but yeah uh yeah i i saw the video uh that you're i know the video that you're talking about um um and it at, at face value looking at it, it it looked pretty bad i mean it, it didn't look like there was something that there was any any real excuse for um you know i i guess they have to just let the let let the system run its course and and see what happens with it i suppose but from the investigative side because i mean that that's something if that would have happened in your jurisdiction like you would have been one of the people to investigate that incident correct yeah okay so from that investigative side a lot of people can you just speak to the time it takes to actually you know investigate it because a lot of people 
were very upset with how long it was taking the game commission yeah. to respond. I mean, the, the game commission responded to it, you know, the, literally the next day and said they were right. investigating. But then it took weeks before the, they filed charges and everything. Can you just sort of speak about how long it takes to actually do your job? Yeah, and that's that's something that people don't understand all the time. Um, you know, it. I mean, first you want to be thorough. You don't want to don't want to miss something or, um, uh, you know, just you don't want to don't want to miss things or 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 uh, you know go through things haphazardly. You want to be thorough, and 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 that does take a little bit of time. And there's something, uh, you know, people see all the the CSI and and all those crime shows and things on TV and everything is done in 60 minutes. Um you know the crime happens they investigate it it's all done and solved and and the bad guys go into jail in in 60 60 minutes or less and it it doesn't work that way in real life. I mean it 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 takes a lot of time uh you know, to write reports sometimes there's uh there's search warrants and things you have to wait for and and information to gather. So it it, it long, there's actually a term for it. They call it the CSI effect, where people expect instant results um, with those things, and it and it does take some substantial amount of time. I know um, some of that that case involved, you know, social media, uh, you know, Facebook or Snapchat or whatever that was on initially. Um, you know, we have to to get those videos, the, the originals and things from those companies. You have to get you have to put together a search warrant, and that's that involves somebody has to sit down and and type that all up and make sure everything is 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 completely completely done and thorough and legal and it has to be signed by a judge and submitted to those companies and and once you submit it it takes some time I know I we do that social media search warrants some things with cell phones um, you know it can sometimes we get things back from those companies in a day or two sometimes it takes two or three weeks just to get that that video or whatever you're trying to get from that back so it, it it does take some time yeah that makes sense it's yeah i really tried to sort of suppress my feelings about it um you know we came out as an organization and you know condemned that act i mean that that kind of stuff oh, yeah. can't can't happen yeah. Um, no, but absolutely. at the same time, I don't want to be calling out the game commission for not acting soon enough. I mean, it, like you said, that CSI effect, people think that these things should go like quickly. Um, but it does, you know, you got to talk to people, you have to do the investigation and I would rather they do it properly and have all the facts and, you know, then be able to file charges and those charges actually stick as opposed to rush through it. And then someone gets away with something that, they shouldn't have if things would have been done thoroughly. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've seen, you know, people will say things they'll say, you know, accuse someone of doing something and that they weren't necessarily there for, but I'll, I'll hear somebody make the statement that, well, you know, he did it. <laughs> well, you don't know that he did it. You think he did it. It looks like he did it. But from our end, you have to remember that the standard in court is beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and that's, you know, in law enforcement, whether it's, you know, a murder investigation or, you know, the wildlife end of things or whatever, it's still the same standard. It's still beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's 97, 98% sure. And I have to be able 
to prove that to a jury in court. Um, and that's that's always the standard you have to look for. So just because everything points one direction and it it should be pretty obvious what happened, we still have to go through all the steps and and make sure the bases are all covered and it wasn't something other than what it looked like or or you know or or something else. Well, let's move on to something a little more cheerful. Uh, what's going on over there where you work in Ohio? Like, what, Tell me something good about what's going on over there. Um, the best thing we have going on right now is probably Lake Erie walleye fishing. Um, not quite happening yet, but it should be picking up uh, real soon. And, and that's lake-wide. I mean, that's you know in Pennsylvania, New York also. Um, the last several years, we've had some of the largest walleye hatches that we've ever seen in Lake Erie. So the, the walleye fishing has been absolutely phenomenal the last, probably the last three years. I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't, aren't really, at least the people from my area aren't thinking this time of year, because most people make that their trip in, you know, midsummer, June, July, Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, but you're saying fishing's good now, you know, if you have a couple of days, maybe try to get a, or within the next couple of weeks, you know, if you have a couple uh, this, of days. This time of the year, typically um, in the Western part of the lake, the Western basin, uh, more towards Sandusky, Toledo, um, the rivers, the walleye are coming up to spawn there. Typically um, early in the season, it, 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 it's much busier over there. Um, but we have, we have plenty of fish all the way across the lake close to shore um you know as soon as it warms up a little bit uh, it it should be should be good I, I know through as soon as it warmed up a little bit last summer um through you know may june july um it was you know all the all as fast as you could catch walleyes almost within you know within a mile or so ashore yeah, I'm as we talked earlier uh, before we started recording. I'm not big in the fishing, uh, but I do love good walleye. So uh, when my uncle goes walleye fishing every year, uh, sort of that late June time, uh, I'm always really rooting for him to get yeah. his limit for walleye because I I really can't think of a fish that tastes better than walleye. Oh yeah, yeah, they're great. Um, it's it's been yeah they're. I, th- I think right now we have some of the highest highest walleye population in Lake Erie that that's ever been recorded. The last time I did sort of a, a bigger fishing excursion uh, was it, this was a couple years ago now, but I went out to Lake Erie to, to perch fish. It, is uh-huh. um, what's the perch like out there now? Um, perch is pretty much on the other end of the spectrum right now. Um, perch fishing's been been kind of tough the last few years we haven't had for whatever reason weather or uh, you know there's a lot of a lot of things going on with nutrient loads and and things in lake erie but and i don't know that anybody knows for sure but we haven't had a good hatch of perch in in several years so it's been the perch fishing's been pretty tough at least at least in ohio um pennsylvania i think they've seen about the same same kind of thing there um, I'm not real sure what they've been seeing over there. I think they may be doing a little bit better over there than we are. Uh, but but the walleye the walleye fishing is more than making up for it right now, though. That's awesome. Uh, having that opportunity uh, to get for guys to go out and, and 
catch, you know, limits or close to limits of walleye. That's, I'm sure, a great moneymaker for both our states yeah, and it's, also New York. And, um, you know, it's just a great opportunity for people to get out on a boat and get some yeah. good quality food. Yeah, I know almost every boat that we checked on a nice day, almost all of last summer came in with a limit. It's been that good. So I'm going to start this next little segment with a little bit of a story from my end, uh, just because what we're going to talk about next is something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, And last winter, so the winter of, I guess, 2018 into 2019, I started looking into honeybees. Uh, We we started an orchard up at our cabin. and it's not quite, you know, it's not fully functional yet, but we started a wildlife orchard and, uh, you know, realizing that insects are, you know, and bees specifically, they do a lot of good pollinating and get that good cross pollinating. So I started looking into them uh, and quickly realized that I was not going to be able to do what I need to do in order to have honeybees uh, just because of the distance of travel and things like that. But right. I did settle on mason bees. Uh, which are an actual native bee to North America. They're solitary. They're supposed to be non-aggressive because there's no queen, and they're supposed to pollinate at actually an increased rate compared to honeybees. So I got my first batch of mason bees last spring, built them a house, uh, built them a block with holes to re-nest, and I did have uh, almost all the bees that I bought uh, emerged, and uh, while I was spring turkey hunting, I was at times uh, around that orchard, you know, watching the bees do their thing. And it was really cool to see and had some rehome and hopefully they emerge next year. I'll be buying some more just to make sure, but um, hopefully they reemerge this year. Um, but the honeybee part that really intrigues me as a food person and as a person that really tries to do as much homegrown and homemade, uh, you know, from scratch type stuff, you know, I've had local honey that, you know, people around me have made from their own hives and it's just amazing. And, you know, now I find out you have honeybees. Can you, can you just sort of give people a little insight into how you got started with honeybees? Uh, well, I can tell you it's more work than I thought it was. <laughs> um, everything is though. Uh, my, my dad had them forever. Um, you know, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania there and my dad, my dad's always had bees, so I've been around it a little bit. Um, he actually, I had a, a great uncle, would have been my dad's uncle, that um, had them for a long time. And uh, my dad always helped him out with the bees. And when my uncle passed away, my dad kind of took over the a few hives there and kind of always had them. Um, I just, I do a lot of gardening and that kind of stuff too. So I, I'd been kicking around the idea. I got, some, I got enough room in the yard here. I could have a few hives or something. I was thinking about it and a couple of years ago, and at the same time, my dad, because he's in western Pennsylvania, was having having a, a, a lot of issues with bears, with his beehives, which, which is an issue. Um, and he's getting older, and it, it involves some, some lifting, and you know, it, it does take some, some effort to do some of it. And, and he's getting older and, and, and things like that, and was having issues with bears anyway, and he said, well, just he has equipment and had everything. So I, he said, you know, clean it up and just take this stuff and set it up out there. And that's what I did. So I've, I've only been doing it very much for, for a couple of seasons, but, um, you just, it's one of those things you'll learn as you go, I guess. 
So like equipment wise, like what, what all do you have? Like what all does someone need to start? Um, well, the, the hive bodies, the boxes, and there's a bottom board and, and, and lids and things for that. Um, frames and the foundation wax that go in it. Um, and just, you know, there's some basic tools, a, a veil so you don't get stung in the face and a smoker and some basic tools, but there's a lot of, you know, the, the bee supply places. Um, there's even like tractor supply type stores and some of those places that, that even sell, uh, sell some of that stuff. Uh, the easiest way would be to, to buy it. They, they sell full kits. You kind of get the whole, you know, all the starting components for the hive and all the tools you need all in, all in one box other, other than bees, um, you know, all in, all in one thing. And that's, that's probably the easiest way to, to get everything that you need. Um, and you know, the bees, you, you can, those can be ordered online. Yeah. That's how I got my, that's how I got my Mason bees, you know, but when I started looking into it, there were, there are different types of Mason bees. Uh, and so I had to sort of, you know, do some research and figure out which ones will be best for my situation, which ended up being very simple. You know, I was putting them next to a, uh, a new orchard. So there are orchard Mason bees that are, you know, they emerge specifically in time for, when most fruit trees would be in bloom type thing. Uh, so it made it pretty simple for me, but are there different types of honeybees or is it pretty much oh. just a, a one shot deal? No, there's, there's a, a lot of different kinds. Um, you know, the Italians are the most common. Um, there's, there's Russian honeybees, uh, Carnolians. There's a bunch of different strains of them. Um, some of them, they all have, it, it's the same as you're talking about with the Mason bees. They have, um, you know, they all have different characteristics. Some, some are a little more gentle, some are more, uh, a little bit more aggressive. Um, some are better honey producers. Um, it, a lot of it depends on, you know, some are, some are better suited for different climates. Uh, some do seem to do a little bit better in the colder weather. Um, it just, it, it's the same kind of thing. You kind of have to, you have to kind of get bees that are kind of tailored to, to your area where you're at, um, you know, the best way to do that would, there's a lot of local beekeeping clubs and, uh, uh, places like that. You know, you can talk to, to, to those people and, and they would know, uh, most beekeepers are, are pretty willing to share information and, and help people out. So what kind of bees do you have? Um, I have, well, I have two hives of, they were, uh, carnolians that i that i ordered last spring um i planned on having two hives i built uh over the winter last year i i built a couple of swarm traps uh, which is basically just a box with some some drawn honeycomb uh and some some attractant in it that you can kind of strap up in a tree uh because in the springtime bees have a if, if it's a strong hive and they get overcrowded they tend to swarm which is when um the, the old queen will leave the hive and take about half of the workers with her. Um, and the ones that are left behind make a new queen, but the old queen will leave and they'll move someplace, maybe, you know, half a mile, a mile, two miles away and establish a new colony someplace else. That's kind of how bees spread themselves around, I guess. Um, if you have those 
a box like that, one of those swarm traps out at that time of the year, um, and you get lucky and one of those swarms happens in the area, um, they'll move into that box and then you can just relocate them into your hive and start them just like, just like you would have bought a, a package of bees that you ordered from someplace. Um, and that's what I did. I, I had two hive, I had two colonies that I ordered that I was waiting for while I was waiting. I thought, well, why not? And I, I put up a swarm trap in my yard and after about a week I went out one day and it was, there was a whole bunch of bees in it. So I ended up with a, a third colony that, you know, for free basically. Wow. That's great. I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that you, that bees would do that swarm. Like when they get overcrowded that half of them just leave. And I, yeah, I, that's, I didn't realize that you could catch those swarms either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, on the, if, if you watch the news in the springtime, there's always a story on the news about a swarm of bees on a, the mirror of a car or some weird place where you see that where it's a, there's like a big ball of bees hanging on a tree limb by a school. That's, that's what's going on. They're just, they're stopping there temporarily looking for some place that they want to move into. Huh. That, that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but that, you know, the news stories don't mention that aspect of it. So, well, right. I never really realized that. Yeah. Huh. They're, they're doing that for a reason. It's uh, yeah. They, if they get overcrowded um, and sometimes they just do it, um, it's just, it's how they, how they spread themselves out, I guess. So you mentioned you've been doing this for a couple of years. What do you do like over winter for these bees? I mean, obviously it's not like you're pulling these bee boxes into your house, right? The, you know, no. to keep them warm. Do you just sort of let them do their thing and they sort of hibernate all winter? Uh, or? Well, they don't really, they don't really hibernate. They just slow down. Um, they still, they keep themselves uh, they still generate heat inside the hive to keep the queen and and what little bit of larva is in there in the winter time uh, to keep them warm. Um, you know, in the winter time, you just you have to make sure they have enough food, enough honey stored up for the winter. And uh, uh, you know, cold and heat, they're able to manage that pretty well. Even if it gets really cold, they'll be they'll be okay. Um, moisture you have to make sure you you have enough ventilation through the hive i put some extra some extra spacers on the top of the hive that that are screened that can vent some moisture out and things like that to to get rid of that that humidity because the because the heat that they generate that they're they're breathing just like we do in that respiration it's the same thing as um you know if you're if your car's not running and you're sitting in the car and you sit in there for an hour on a cold day you get condensation on the inside of the windows and, and all that. And it steams up. It's the same thing. Um, bees can tolerate the cold, but they don't tolerate moisture very well. Um, so if you don't have some way for that to, to vent out, you can get condensation on the inside of the, uh, on the inside of the lid and it drips down onto the bees and they'll get chilled and cold and eventually it'll kill them. Um, but other than that, I mean, they're, they manage the temperatures. The biggest thing is uh, there's a mite that's pretty prevalent in bees everywhere right now, uh, varroa mite. Um, they carry diseases and things and stress the bees. Uh, managing those mites seems to be the one of the biggest factors in in their survival for for the winter. Is that is there anything you can do to help manage that, or is it just sort of a 
a chance you take and yeah. hopefully the colony doesn't fail. No, you keep, uh, I try to check them, you know, once a month or so. Um, you can, you can do some things. There's some tests to some alcohol wash and, and things where you can wash the mites and get a count, um, get a count of how many mites are in the hive and an idea of that. And then treat once they get above a certain threshold, um, treat for that. And there's a bunch of different, um, a bunch of different ways to treat for that. There's some, you know, different chemical treatments and, and some different things. Everybody um, kind of has a way they do it or a couple different ways they do it. Just a lot of it depends on temperature and time of the year, which method you want to use. But um, it's it's a big thing that beekeepers are fighting right now, trying to, to manage that that Varroa mite. And, and there's people working on you know, trying to breed some kind of resistance or something into bees too, but I don't, I don't think they're quite there yet. You mentioned it's a lot of work, and it sounds like a lot of work, uh, but hopefully there's, other than just providing a pollinator to an area, hopefully there's something you're getting out of that, right, which would be the honey. Do you yeah. process the honey yourself? Uh, yeah, I was, I, I had some new colonies last year, so I didn't want to, you know, the honey you're taking off is is excess that they're not going to need, so you have to make sure you leave, leave enough for them for the wintertime to survive on. But I did, um, actually that, that swarm that I caught ended up out of all three, the, the, the two that I bought and the, the, the one swarm that I caught ended up being the, uh, the strongest out of all three. And I actually got, I think 40 pounds or so of honey off of, oh, wow. off of that hive and still had enough to leave, leave an extra box on for them for the winter. Um, so I was that was I was kind of surprised. I didn't expect to get because normally the first year, um, unless you have an exceptional year with uh, with with uh, nectar flow and an exceptional hive, normally the first year you you don't get uh, any kind of honey crop off of them. Um, so that was that was kind of a, a good surprise. Yeah, that seems like a lot. Uh, how do you so how do you go about processing it? I mean, is there anything that you need to specifically do or is it just you know sort of scrape off the beeswax and drain out the honey and uh, yeah off? it's i have a small extractor um you can you pull those frames out of there um you you just kind of take the caps off of the end of of those cells and there's an extractor that the frames go in and it just uses centrifugal force and spins the honey out um, and it drains out the bottom and you can filter it and jar it is all you really need to do. Um, there's some other, there's some other methods. There's people that take, cut out all that comb and, um, they press it and, and crush the honey out that way. Um, I mean, I know there's, there's people that just take that out you can heat it and let it cool and the wax floats to the top and the honey stays underneath and you drain it out under, you know, from the bottom of that. Um, but, uh, most, most people are just using a, that centrifugal force with some kind of an extractor. You, you know, you've been around honeybees, you know, for years and years uh, between your great uncle and, and your dad. And now you, uh, is there like a difference in taste or color or anything like that based on time of year that you, t that you extract the honey or even, you know, location, like you said, moving, you know, your dad's bees from Western PA, well, I guess you bought new bees, but, you know, the bees that he had in Western PA versus in Ohio, like, it, it, 
Is there a difference there? Uh, I don't know that it has anything to do with the bees, but the, the time of the year and your location, um, absolutely. Um, you know, it just depends on what types of flowers and what kind of blossoms they're, they're working on certain times of the year. Um, you know, there's a whole, whole gradient of, of color for, for honey. Um, some of it is almost clear to you know, some of the late, you know, some of the fall honey, uh, goldenrod and some of those things are, uh, very, very dark, um, stronger tasting depending on you know what kind of blossoms they are. So it, it varies a lot depending on what's in your area and, and, uh, and the time of year. So if someone, you know, is thinking like I was, Hey, I think I might want to start honeybees. Uh, you got to make sure that there's enough blossoms for them to actually get the nectar from, uh, you know, how big, you know, how big of an area are you talking about when you're saying in your area? Is it, uh, you know, Half miles, five miles. They're, they normally travel in a radius of three to four miles. Okay. So, you know, you draw a circle, you know, three miles out from from where your where your hives are. That's that's a pretty substantial area. Yeah, so it's not like you personally need to provide a bunch of blossoms for them to get nectar from. I mean they're no. they're going all throughout, you know your neighborhood, city, wherever you're at to get mm-hmm. the nectar that they need. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's, and there's more, you know, even pollen, you know, right now it's still pretty cold. Uh, but the last few days was warm. I, I still saw the bees bringing in pollen. Some of the maple trees and things are starting to produce pollen already that they're starting to collect. Huh. That's, that's, so, that's not, so interesting to me. So not, not a lot of nectar yet that they would, used to, to make honey with, but, but the pollen's important too, because that's a protein source for, for the larva. Huh. Uh, so when you go in and, and you say you check on, like you're putting that veil on and you're using the smoke to just sort of disorient them a little bit so they don't sting you, but I'm assuming you're still, you still probably get stung from time to time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, every once in a while I'll, you know, skip the veil or whatever, but um, I, I paid for that a few times, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you still get stung once in a while. Um, I mean, that's some of that's because I, I don't always wear gloves and things cause it makes it easier to, to handle stuff. So I, I get stung on the hands on occasion or something like that. Most of the time, you know, when there's a, when there's a honey flow going on, they're busy. They're not real concerned with, with what I'm doing. As long as, as long as you're moving slow and don't, you know, do something to, to really disturb them, you know, shake them or something like that. But, uh, most of the time, but every now and then they just get a day where they're, they're not having it. And it just, it's not the day to, to, to look around in there. Cause they don't want you there. So have there been days where like, you're like, you know what, I'm going to go check on them and you start to open things up and you're like, you know what, they're not happy. I'm just going to come back a different day. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, and you'll, you'll know you open, open the hive up and you know, a whole bunch of bees come out and they're right on the, right on the veil and trying to drill into your face. It's probably not the day to, to go digging around through the hive. Just uh, this past weekend, uh, my father and I went to visit someone else's camp and they were cutting down some trees and uh, we conveniently got there when the work was already done as planned. 
Sure. Um, but one of the trees that they felled actually had honeycomb. You know, it was hollow on the inside, and mm-hmm. it had a honeycomb in there. Uh, I was surprised. Uh, there were no bees, um, but I was surprised to see that the honey was. It flowed almost like water. You know, like when you think about honey, you think it's pretty thick and pretty, um, I guess, sort of sticky. And this honey wasn't. It was almost like it was sugar water. Okay. I mean, is that just because, you know, maybe it's a, it, I, I don't know. I, I was just surprised to see a little bit thinner honey as opposed to, I guess, what I would see in stores. Yeah, usually that's uh, because it's not cured. I mean, in the, in the, and I'll see that even in a, in a regular hive in the summertime uh, when they're still filling that comb up, it'll be thin and, because they leave it open. The nectar is thin like that normally till they store it for a while and move the air across it and evaporate it and condense it down. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, this time of the year, that was from the fall. It might've, it might've been, you know, something they were collecting It they died out or moved on or something before it was cured. It could have been something like that. Huh. Okay. That, so basically they, they, before they do that final capping with that wax, um, they're, they're going to almost like age the honey a little bit just to make it a little bit more condensed power pack food source for them later. Yeah. They just evaporate the moisture out of it and, and condense it down. Now, do you, is the, is the wax, whenever you remove those caps, is that just sort of a byproduct for you and you just sort of throw that away or do you, have you ever tried to do anything with that? Um, I, well, I save that um, some of the, the foundation that you put in there's, you know, sheets of wax or plastic that the bees kind of start on to draw out that honeycomb. Um, I save it because some of the hives I use plastic foundation in, and um, I like to, I melt that down and, and paint an extra layer of wax onto that plastic foundation to, to give them a, a little better of a, a better spot to start. Um, so I, I do use some of that wax for that. Okay. Uh, is there anything I'm missing with, with honeybees that you're like, Hey, this is something that could really help someone if they wanted to get started with honeybees. Um, you know, the only thing, yeah, if somebody's interested in doing something like that, I'd, I'd say, you know, read some books, join a local beekeeping club, um, talk to local beekeepers. Um, you know, you can, you can buy a whole kit and get yourself set up fairly, fairly easy with it. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. You, I everybody that does it learns something all the time. Um, just when you think you have it figured out, the bees will do something different. So, um, and it it was a little confusing when I even when I started because it seemed like I told somebody it's like I had a question about something. I, I asked three different beekeepers and I got five different answers on how to do something. <laughs> and, you know, and, and and that's what a lot of it is. It's some things there's no right way. There's just different ways, and everybody does it their own way and you just kind of have to figure it out as, as you go to some extent, but, um, but a lot of it is, is standard things too, that, um, you know, through a, through a club or local beekeepers, you can, you can pick up fairly easy. Yeah. It basically sounds like most everything else in life, uh, you know, a pound of experience outweighs a hundred pounds of book learning. You know, being able to talk to someone who maybe has been through a similar situation can 
help you easier than you trying to research it on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know that, and yeah, like just yeah, a hands-on go out and do it. And, and some of it, you, you get, I guess you just figure out as you go. Um, you know, Well, Brian, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was definitely very informative for me. Um, It's something that I can't do right now because of where my house is at. But uh, as we start, you know, my wife and I are starting to look at some properties and some things like that to purchase. So it's something that I would be very interested in trying to start later on. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It, you know, it does take a little bit of time, but you just kind of have to you know, work it in when the weather's right and, and things like that. But, um, you know, it's it's one more thing on my list of hobbies, I suppose. <laughs> All right, Brian, again, thank you for coming on. And uh, we'll talk again, hopefully, sometime soon. Sure. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Brian for coming on again. If you want to hear more about his job and you haven't listened to episode nine yet, uh, go over and listen to episode nine. It was a good one. Uh, He shared some good stories and uh, it's always interesting to hear what people's day jobs uh, are actually like. I am still on sort of a quarantine, I'm not really quarantined, but I'm not working <laughs> as as this episode is released. Still not working. Uh, things are apparently getting a little bit worse in the state of Pennsylvania. So, good news for me, you know, not working. But also good news for anyone listening, we're still extending for another uh, two weeks minimum the giveaway. So if you would like a free Conservation Unfiltered podcast sticker to represent, uh, you all you have to do is rate and review this podcast uh, on Apple iTunes, and uh, we screenshot it, send it over to us either on Twitter, at conserve underscore wild, on Instagram, conserve the wild, or you can email it to us, info at conservewild.org, and we will get your address and send that out to you. I'm also going to expand this giveaway, since just found out I'm going to be off for a little bit longer than originally planned. If you sign up for our newsletter, I will also send out a Conservation Unfiltered podcast sticker to you. All you have to do to sign up for our newsletter is go onto our website, conservewild.org. It's right there at the top in the header on the front first page, really on all our pages. Just go ahead and throw your name in there, throw your email address in there, and then I will be in touch to get you addressed to know where to send that sticker to. With all this quarantine stuff going on, uh, we just found out... uh, today or the last couple days here in in the state of Pennsylvania that uh, there are some counties that are on uh, virtual lockdown. I mean, a very strong stay-at-home advisory from our governor. But one thing that he said you are able to do is run and hike outside. 
Uh, I just spent this past weekend with my wife and the dogs. We did some shed hunting up at our cabin. Uh, we did some training at a local game lands uh, with the dogs. They actually found some woodcock. So I, you know, it was great. You know, my wife and I are home all day, every day together, uh, which, you know, I love her. She's great. Uh, but it's a lot of time spent together, not really doing a whole lot of anything. So, uh, I recommend getting outside just sort of breaks that cabin fever that I know we're all feeling anyways, because we're coming off of winter. So get outside, be active, practice social distancing, but what better way to do that than to be in the outdoors until next week. Stay wild. Thank mm-hmm. you.